it is an honor to be here. Yeah, you mentioned we have seven kids. We also found out that our third daughter is pregnant with our eighth grandchild. Uh, two of our kids have kids in that, in that stage. So we have uh, just had twins last year. And uh, so we are so blessed. None of them are in, in, in Montana, so that is wrong. And I uh, pray that that will be corrected. It is such an honor to be here. And, you know, you talked about homiletics and sermons. Uh, this will be probably not quite following a sermonic, homiletic uh, thing. It's a kind of a mixture of uh, going through Scripture, so telling some personal stories, and I'll, I'll give you the relevance of it here in a little while. So it's not going to follow maybe a normal sermonic where we go through a, a text and exegete it. But where we will go to are the pastoral epistles, uh, First and Second Timothy and Titus, and kind of bounce around through all those. So if you want to find your way there, that's where we're going to wind up. Uh, I'll pray, and then, and then we'll get started here. Uh, Father, thank you for this privilege to stand before these choice servants and share your word to them. Uh, I pray for your Holy Spirit's empowerment and enlightenment for all of us as we listen to your, your perfect word. It is a powerful moment when... Uh, Spirit of God and the Word of God, the people of God come together, and we pray for a significant work in and through this time we have here. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, in preparing for this message, uh, I, I made this startling revelation that this year is 2016. And then I began to process a bit more. I go, 2016, 30 years ago, I graduated from Bible college. I looked it up. I didn't know this off the top of my head. May 17, 1986, I graduated from a little Bible college in Phoenix, Arizona, Arizona College of the Bible, a lot like this Bible college. We maxed out at that stage about 200 students. So we were maybe a little bigger, I'm not sure. But uh, after a few years, though, it went in decline, some leadership issues, and has since closed its doors. But 30 years ago, this semester, I was seated where you're seated. Uh, I also thought of other things as well. We're coming up on our 35th wedding anniversary, 30 years since I graduated, and then uh, 25 years since I've gone into full-time vocational ministry. I was bivocational for a while, but 25 years ago this year, I started full-time vocational ministry and have pastored nonstop except for one break of uh, one year where I worked at Starbucks while we transitioned to Illinois, which was I was pastor there at Starbucks, so I am always a pastor. Uh, so I was thinking for a moment, I was seated 30 years ago where you are seated. So what would I want said to me 30 years ago from me? I mean, you know this song, Brad Paisley, the country uh, music guy? Can I mention secular guys here? Is that all right? <laughs> yeah, he, he, re he released an album, uh, Fifth Gear, 2007. And there's a neat song, uh, it's, it's Letter to Me. And in the song, he tells about what if I were able to write a letter to myself when I was 17 years old. And it's neat how he says, these, these are the things I would tell myself if I could go back when I was 17. So the way this is going to kind of work is I'm almost seated 30 years ago where you are, and this is what I would tell to myself, a Bible college student 30 years ago. So basically, the sermon's to me, but you all are welcome to listen. So this is a sermon to me from 30 years ago. The subtitle, A Message to Bible College Students in 2016 from a pastor who graduated from Bible College in 1986. 
So uh, the first thing is this, I think that I would say to myself, and this is from 1 Timothy 1.12, you're called. Jim, you're called into the gospel ministry. And if you're like me back 30 years ago, you're just trying to figure all this out. And one of your questions is, am I really called by God into this ministry? Is this really what you want me to do, God? Am I a missionary? Am I a pastor? Am I a teacher? Uh, Do I go into uh, secular ministry, you know, work, whatever? Am I called to this ministry? And it's essential to be carried to to understand that. 1 Timothy 1.12, this is what Paul says. I thank him who has given me strength, Jesus Christ our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Here's one of the most powerful things you can have in ministry is this clear sense of appointment to the service of God. It is so powerful and clarifying and liberating to to, to say this one statement, I am a pastor. It is wonderful to know that and to see that God has considered me faithful to go into this service. So later on, he says to Timothy, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. I love that. Yeah. Because like you all could be my child. Just don't expect me to pay tuition. (laughs) This charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. The prophecies, I think, was this. Timothy, you're called. You are called into the gospel ministry. And one of the things I would want to hear and for you to recognize is that you have a call. Now, it may not be a professional vocational call like I'm involved in, but everybody, everybody has some sort of call in the gospel ministry, and you have one. And let that be the beacon that guides you into what you do. It is the defining thing in what God has called me to do. But I have questioned my call frequently. There are two times I think that I've tried to abandon my call. The first one, after a failed bivocational pastor, which was a wreck, a disaster, a fiasco, it was a bad situation. And so I remember on the heels of that, I got in my head, I can't be a pastor. So I thought, I'll be a missionary. I'll be a missionary. So we began the process of becoming missionaries. And in the series of circumstances, God made it really clear, no, I want you to be a pastor. And actually, in the process of trying to be a missionary, we wound up in Arkansas at the church where I was trying to candidate to become their pastor, and I stayed there for 13 years. After 13 years, I was going, you know, I want to go to academics. I want to teach, like, at a Bible college because, like, it's the easiest job in the world, and it's nothing but fun all the time. Amen. Amen. Yeah. This pastoral ministry stuff is hard, and so we moved to Chicago. I went to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School because I was going on to academics, and this is a true story. Uh, one of my, I was taking some summer classes. I, I took this uh, uh, one course where we had to read The Unnecessary Pastor by Marva Don and uh, Eugene Peterson. So I'm reading the book, and in there, I've got a highlight in red, a yellow, I wish I'd t- I brought it. It says... If you want to teach, be a pastor. And I was there to get out of the pastor so I could teach. He goes, often pastors want to go into academia so they can teach. I found the best place to teach is in the pastorate. And the Holy Spirit said, that's you. 
You're like Jonah running from this pastoral call. You want to go into academia, but you're called to be a pastor. And after several years there, four years in, in Illinois, I remember the last Sunday as associate pastor at Long Grove Community Church, I stood up and said, well, I just said to you, I am a pastor. And it is so great to be locked on what God's called you to do. And so remember that prophecy about you. Uh, and, and I like what Parker Palmer says about this vocation. He's talking about it in general, but I think it's back for us. Vocation at its deepest level is there is something I can't not do. For reasons I'm unable to explain to anyone else and don't fully understand myself, but that are none, nonetheless compelling. Pastoring is that thing that I can't not do. Like Jeremiah, I've tried to quit. And when I tried to quit, it was like burning within my bones. I have to do this. I am so happy right now doing this right here with you. This is what I've been created for. It is my call. So recognize that God has called you, and along with that is the ability to do what God has called you to do, and don't waver from it. Don't be a Jonah. Don't try to run from what God's called you to do. Second thing I think I would say to myself is this, uh, on this call, is get a second opinion, though. Because we can delude ourselves very easily that we're something that we're not. And so this is what Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.6. For this reason, I remind you to fan into the flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. We also need other people to recognize that call as well. There's a lot of people. I remember I just talked to somebody, and they, they had been trained for vocational ministry, and they asked, what do you think this guy could do in vocational ministry? And I said, honestly, nothing. He should be a really good Sunday school teacher, or he should be a really good layperson at church. I do not think that he has the gift and calling for vocational ministry. That's what I see. And in essence, I told him that to his face a couple of times as well. And so sometimes, though, we can delude ourselves in thinking that we are something that we're not. And what's helpful is to have outside people to lay their hands on them. I remember my ordination. It was a holy moment because godly men that I appreciated and valued, they gathered around me and they laid their hands on me and they said, you are called to pastoral ministry. Marvin Eck, in my ordination examination, I remember he's the old guy, and he looked at me and he says, I already made up my mind a long time ago he's qualified for ministry. <laughs> Do you know what that meant to me? To have Marvin X say, you're in. Do you know what it meant to me to have my dad, one of the guys circled around me, laying their hands on me saying, you're called? And I remember one time this blue-headed lady came up to me, you know, I don't know how they get their hair blue, but they do that sometimes. And this little blue-haired lady came to me one time, and it was just at that moment she said to me, you're a good teacher. And that was so refreshing and so validating that if you're called, other people are going to see the call as well. And you'll see some success and so on in what you're doing as well. Uh, every Sunday morning when I get to preach at E-Free Church, I look across that crowd, I go, I'm just shocked they can't come back. But they just keep coming back. And, and I just I love what God's doing, how he's, he's confirming my particular call. The third thing I, I think I would say to myself uh, when I was a senior at, at uh, Bible College, don't be fearful, but be fearless. Uh, this is what he told Timothy, and I just resonate with Timothy. 
For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Uh, for God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Uh, when I was 30 years ago, I was a very fearful person. And when I look back over years of ministry and so on, there are those moments when I did not give in to a spirit of fear because it's not from God. And when I did not give into that spirit of fear, we see breakthrough. I mean, those of you homilics, pastors, guys, and so forth, you remember that first sermon? That was fearful. That was like earth-shakingly frightening to get up on that platform and stand in front of people and open God's word. And I'm so thankful I came out of that fear. I, I was fearful about coming here to Bozeman, fearful about having our fourth child, because I didn't see how in the world we could afford a fourth child. And God gave us seven. Fearful of decisions of confrontation of people. Fearful. The, the regrets I have in ministry are times I gave into fear. And you can't let fear dominate you and fulfill what God's called you to do. And that's what he's saying him. God didn't give you the spirit of fear. The only thing you fear is fear God. You fear God and you trust in him. And so don't be fearful, but fearless. That's what I would tell myself 30 years ago, staying up here. Next thing is this, is that uh, pastoral ministry involves success and suffering. Uh, 2 Timothy 2, 3 through 7. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. I think it would be good for me on the front end. I, I'm not, I know they told it to me, but I probably didn't listen. But ministry is just is really hard work. And when you set yourself in following Jesus, what he's called you to do, you're just going to suffer. It's unavoidable. It's all part of it. So, so when you begin to suffer, what you do is complain to Jesus. Because it's really good for you to, suffer, to complain about what you're suffering about to a guy who was crucified. Because it puts what you're going through in perspective. And, and I, I want to be straight with you. It is a hard thing that God's called us to do. And we have experienced some very, very painful, hurtful suffering in our lives. And I stand here now 30 years later, and those are some of the most precious things that God has taken us through as well. I don't stand with bitterness and resentment and anger about all those things. I see them as God's sovereign hand of shaping me more and more into the conformity of the image of his son. I do not want to repeat them, but I'm thankful for them. And there are moments where it's just like our world just fell apart and we enter into the sufferings of Christ because there sometimes we experience even what Christ experienced. But we also have great successes as well. That there have been times where it's just so fulfilling in doing what God has called us to do, fulfilling that. So he says, he gives some analogies then as to what pastoral ministry is like. Share in suffering as a good soldier. It's a battle. Verse 4, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. You know, stay focused on what God's called you to do. Since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Be single-minded in your focus. Then he switches metaphors to athletics. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Uh, 
use integrity and you're following the rules, what we're supposed to be doing. Verse 6, it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Uh, I like what Eugene Peterson says about this. It's the hardworking farmer who ought to share the first share of the crops. Uh, I think one of the analogies of farmers is just patience. And you have to be patient in fulfilling what God's called you to do and the work that God's called you to do. It takes a long time. And then this is what Peterson said. I think the besetting sins of pastors, maybe especially evangelical pastors, is impatience. So one of the first things and best things I did in like my uh, in my second or third year in Arkansas, we stayed there 13 years, I really wanted to quit. I had had enough. Because what happens is this usually happens when you go to church, year two and three, you want to quit. Because two things happen. They have figured out who you are. And you figured out who they are. There's no more hiding, you know, the year honeymoon is over. The reality is set in, and you see reality for sure. Frequently, year two and three, you're ready to just bail. So there's a book Eugene Peterson wrote that had just been released uh, under the unpredictable plant. And I read that, and it really revolutionized my thinking. In that, in, in that book, he talks about uh, Benedict, who had the, the vows of uh, poverty and chastity and so on. And Benedict added another vow, the vow of stability. And I remember reading that, and, and Eugene Peterson stayed in the same church for 20-something years. And I read that book, and I said, God, I will stay in this church until you release me. And I stayed there for 13 years, and it was one of the best things I did for that church and for me. It was good for me not to cut and run too quickly because if you want to see a harvest, it takes patience sometimes. And be patient in what you're doing to be methodical. We've been at this church for seven and a half years, uh, getting close to eight, and the summer will be eight. And uh, I am, again, so thankful we're here. And I see things happening that have been envisioned for several years at our church. Our church is the healthiest it's been. It's on target the best it's been. And it's been a seven-year process. And I remember coming in, I said, this is going to take, a, take time for it to go in a direction that I really believe that we're called to as a church. And we're to be patient in what God's called us to do and to continue on. And then I like what he says in verse 7. He says, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Paul says, just think over what I say. This analogy of being a soldier, this analogy of being an athlete, this analogy of being a farmer, think over what I have to say. I think the other thing that I've learned uh, in, in pastoral ministry and ministry in general is the church is an organism and an organization. I think what I had when I graduated from is this naive uh, thought that uh, all I was going to do was just preach. Preach the word. And, uh, that, uh, I, and that I was just going to give myself to that and that only, and then things were just going to really go great as a result of that. Um, I, I like that model in Acts chapter 6, verse 4, uh, where the apostles say, you know, that the distribution of the bread of the widows is going on. There's that problem. And they said, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And I thought, that's all I want to do. I just want to pray and preach. 
pray and preach. And if I can just pray and preach, everything's going to be fine. And one of the things I realized is that uh, I went to a workshop one time, and I was at the church for a long time, so I was just praying and preaching, praying and preaching. And the, the guy said, made a statement that really resonated with me. He said, you cannot preach your way to a healthier church. Because while there's this organic organism of a church, it's a body and so on, it's still an organization. That, and it's an organization It needs attention to be developed in a way that most brings glory to God. You see biblical examples of this organizational piece as well, Titus 1.5. Titus 1.5, he says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed it. His job was to organize that body as well. And a church is an organization that needs input in organizing the people in a way to fulfill what God's called them to do. And all I was trying to do was do it just through preaching. And I gave no att a little attention to the organization. Remember that example, Acts chapter 6, verse 4. We just want to pray. We want to just preach the word. What was the problem? An organizational problem. The widows were being overlooked, so they addressed that problem with an organizational solution. They found the seven deacons, we can call them, and they met the organizational need because people were going hungry. And so one of the things I've learned as well is that you have to do the work also of addressing the organization. Uh, at both churches, Arkansas and here, we did a rewrite of constitution and bylaws. Actually, in the church in Arkansas, we shut down the whole old organization and wrote a whole new one because in that one it says the Constitution cannot be altered or amended. So we had this piece of document that we could never legally change it. So what we did is we went to a lawyer and created a whole new institution on paper and reformed because organizationally, there were problems there. Here at E-Free, we've worked in the organizational area. We've reworked the governance. We've worked the leadership, the staff, and all those sort of things. That is not what I wanted to do at Bible College. But we're a healthy church because of it. And there's this organizational element as well that we have to deal with. And along that line, you need to follow a model that really works for you. Um, this may sound strange when you address the organizational things, but in my pastoral ministry, let me get the number here exactly, I've asked six men to step off the elder board over my ministry years here. Because you need to have biblically qualified people, but you also need to have people who are in alignment with the mission and vision. And with each of those cases, the church has grown because of that. Because I remember one time I went to another workshop that was very helpful, and this is what he said. Most churches are two to three people away from being healthy. And when I thought of that, I go, there's this guy on the elder board that just in Arkansas, he blocks everything, everything. And we agreed that we we're going to be unanimous in our decisions, so he had veto power over everything because all we all did. And I went to him as an older man, and I talked to him, and reluctantly he stepped off the board 
and the unity of the board just changed so immediately. Those are hard things I didn't think I was going to have to deal with 30 years ago, but I'm glad that God's given us the courage to do. And so you need a team around you as well, an organization that, that fits into your weaknesses and strengths as well. Uh, the next thing is this. Uh, you need to know that you don't know. And the sooner you know that you don't know, you're really better off. Uh, I, I go back. I graduated from college in Arizona, Bible college. But my first college experience was a, a Bible college in Missouri. It was a big one. You know, it was a huge Bible college. And, but it wasn't a fit with me. And... Uh, uh, I, it just didn't work well with, with how I was lined up. And it was my sophomore year of college, because I'd gone a year of community college, my sophomore year of college. And you know what sophomore means? Wise fool. Sophos, moron, is the meaning of sophomore. How many sophomores here? Hey. It was my sophomore year. I was this wise fool. I was set in chapel. And I, over this year there, became more and more cynical with the chapel speakers. I would just rip them apart. I would criticize them. I would say these things about them. Oh, I can't believe they're doing that. I was so dogmatic and so critical. And I remember one day, Dr. Bartlett got up to preach. He preached from Revelation. He preached about the glory of God. And I was sitting there just off, oh, these guys, they don't know what they're doing because I'm a sophomore. I know what's going on. This is how I'm going to do things. And then we would get together in our dorms, you know, and just rip the pastors. Oh, did you hear what he said? I can't believe he's so And we would go off on him. And because what? We were really smart. After all, I was a sophomore in Bible college. I'd read a book. And so we would rip and rip, and Dr. Bartlett preached, and I sat there all, and I went back to my dorm room, and, and uh, uh, a guy on my floor, he turned to me and he said, Dr. Bartlett's sermon was amazing. And I thought for a minute, and I go, it was. It was one of the best sermons from the book of Revelation I had ever heard. He exegeted the text really well. It brought glory to Jesus Christ. And I was so cynical and embittered because I was a know-it-all. And old people weren't going to tell me anything that I had lost that blessing. And I'd chosen not to hear the good in what people were saying because I thought I knew more than I really knew. And, and uh, the, the reason I come to bring to this is uh, this is what uh, Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, 5-7. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, swerving from what are these? Uh, love from a pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away in vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. 
They don't really know what they're saying. They make these common assertions. And that's what I was doing in my sophomore year of Bible college is I was being critical because I knew more than them and how foolish of me in my 20s to look at men of God in their 40s, 50s, and 60s and go, you don't know what you're talking about. So fast forward several years. Now I'm here in Bozeman, and I'm a pastor. So I'm preaching at E-Free Church at Crew one time. And uh, the place was packed. It was several years ago. And uh, I, I was preaching on a tough topic. It was hell. So I think there was, close, there was well over 300 people there, students. It was just really cool. What an opportunity to preach about hell. So afterwards, I felt like the sermon went well on hell. And, uh, and, and I was going out. And people were talking to me so on. And I, I come out to our lobby area. And again, I don't even know who this guy is. But there were three guys standing there. And one of them looked at me. And they, he pointed out a mistake I'd made in his thinking uh, uh, in the text. And I said something about it. I go, where are you from? He goes, Montana Bible College. <laughs> and uh, it reminded me of this. Is first of all, uh, I think he had a faulty hermeneutic. And it wasn't well developed. But he had read a book. So he knew a lot about hermeneutics because he'd read that book. And he was probably a sophomore. I don't know the guy. So uh, you may be in the room. If you are, you've been in school a long time because it was like six or seven years ago. <laughs> you need to move on uh, and graduate. But I'm just joking about that. Don't, don't, don't write the president or anything about that. But it was, it was pretty cool because uh, he confronted me. And I felt like Jesus must have felt in Luke chapter eleven fifty three, 53, where the scribes and Pharisees, they were lying in wait to catch him. He might say something. And in my whole sermon, he goes, Aha! I got him. That's where he's wrong. And he pointed out the one thing he disagreed with. And I remember when he brought out this point, which I think he was wrong. He could be right, but I think he was wrong. When he brought out the one point, this, my spirit kind of went like this. I, I'm going to take you down intellectually. I'm going <laughs> to theologically and hermeneutically throw you down. It'll be a slam. Because <laughs> I could put you down in 30 seconds. And I remember that as I come back, and then I just kind of go, Never mind. And then I turned, you know, and I, I did the appropriate goodbye or whatever. And then I turned and walked away. I go, reminds me of myself when I was in Bible college. <laughs> and you need to be careful in, in shutting yourself off from hearing people speak and being too critical. How many would like it if all your professors, whenever you turn to the paper and you got a 99, they go, aha! You missed that one. But I got a 99. Oh, but you missed that one. And I see in myself sometimes that I need to recognize I'll be a learner. Now, let me wrap things up with this because I don't know I'm out of time. Uh, finished well. I hope I haven't been too negative because this is what I really wanted to get across to you as well. Pastoral ministry and the ministry is just a wonderful, wonderful privilege that I love deeply. I don't know you. I don't know you well. 
that I can say this in a certain, I really do love you and I'm pulling for you to fulfill what God's called you to do. I am so, so, so incredibly thankful that God called me in the pastoral ministry. It is one of the highest privileges that God has given me. And in the same way to you, God has given you this privilege to serve him in some capacity, some way. And it's motivated by this, that, that I just love God. And I can't help but love people as a result of that. And so if I would say to myself 30 years ago, I would say is continuing the work that God's called you to do for his glory and his kingdom and finish well. And that's my goal is to finish well and on time, which I did kind of, sort of. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the students here and for uh, the, the, the tremendous privilege to stand here in front of, in front of them. Uh, Bless them, fill them with your Holy Spirit, give them supernatural wisdom. I pray for those who are weary or questioning their call, that you'll give strength to the weary and clarity to those who are in process of questioning whether you've called them or not. Father, I pray for this group that they would do tremendous work for your glory and your kingdom. May you, 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 you alone be glorified through these choice servants here. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.